I realized that it was a test. How committed am I out here? I'm getting on the bike every day and I'm doing the work. And yes, I have these amazing days where I feel strong and triumphant over each hill that I'm cresting. But then there's all these other days that I feel weak and like I kind of just want to, you know, crawl in bed and have my mommy make me soup. And I kind of had to look at myself and say, you're stronger than this. You can keep going. Get better. And let's hit the road again. Ten years ago, artist and photographer Erin Azuz never thought that she would be biking 10,000 miles from Mexico to Patagonia. She was working for a design firm in New Mexico, and getting on a bike didn't sound that interesting to her. But when she met her now husband, Mehdi, on Tinder in 2015, things changed and fast. Mehdi convinced Erin to go on what turned out to be a life-altering journey through Mexico, Central, and South America. The bike trip profoundly shifted Erin's relationship with her work, her husband, and most importantly, with herself. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living, an REI Co-op Studios production brought to you by Capital One. Biking from Mexico to Patagonia is an epic continental journey. When Erin first set out, she had no idea how long the trip would take. If she'd known the ride would last almost two years, she might not have gone. Two years is a massive commitment, especially considering that Aaron and Mehdi hadn't been together for very long. Aaron Azuz, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. We're excited to chat with you. Thank you. I'm excited to chat with you too. So I love interviewing badass females with like the most extreme wild ideas, which yours was to bike all of Latin America. Yeah. So many questions. Yes. Why? Like when, when and why did you get this wild idea? So I have to give credit where it's due. Um, my now husband, Mehdi, this was kind of his lifelong dream to get on a bike and ride all the way to Patagonia. And one of the things that I had always wanted to do was to travel in Latin America with my camera and a guitar and just kind of live the vagabond life for a while. Sounds amazing. And so I guess when we met, we we really started to talk about different travel ideas, how we wanted to live our lives. And he went on his first long bike trip. It was about three weeks down the West Coast, um, Oregon and California, uh, probably about four months or so after we had started seeing each other. And I, when he got home, he just had this just stoke about it. And it was like he was alive. And that was really attractive for sure. But it was also just really powerful to see the passion in him about traveling and being on his bike and feeling totally self-sufficient. And, you know, he came home and was like, we got to do this together. It's so incredible. It's so freeing. There's just this sense of freedom about your day. You don't know where you're going to go, what you're going to do, what you're going to see, but it's amazing. And let's do it. What day did you leave? Like, when did you get this idea and when did you leave? Okay, so 
So I guess the birth of the idea was in September of 2015. And get our one-way plane ticket to Puerto Vallarta was on February 8th, 2016. So it was really very little time uh, before we took off. And there was very little preparation. And in a way, kind of going in so blindly had its advantages because I think if we had done more preparation or decided, okay, a year from now we're going to do this thing, then, you know, you, you kind of like come up with all of these reasons not to do it. Like, oh, this this bike part isn't the right thing or, you know, I don't know, I'm really uncomfortable in my bike shorts and, you know, maybe I need to find something different to make it work. You kind of just, if you don't have a lot of preparation, it is harder on the ground, but you adapt because you don't have any other choice. Yeah, you don't have the analysis paralysis. Because yes. your friend when it comes to wild ideas. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Um, I love this. So, okay, what did you have to give up? Like, where were you living? You obviously probably had a job, family. There had to have been some doubters. Yeah. So right before we went on this backpacking trip, I was working at this creative agency in Santa Fe, um, loved my job, had a blast there. And um, I just I had this feeling that I needed to kind of spread my wings and focus on my photography. And I kind of said, you know, like, I'll give myself a year and see how it goes. And if I need to find another job after that year, that's fine. But I ended up hitting the road. And, you know, I've been just doing freelance work since. So it really worked out in that way. It was a huge leap of faith. So we had left behind our little casita. We packed up all of our stuff in boxes and kind of just stored it away. And Mehdi's parents own our house, so they were cool to kind of just let us store our stuff for however long we were gone for. We weren't sure how long, but, you know, our families were so supportive of us doing this. I think everybody kind of thought, well, let's see how far they really get. You know, (laughs) I don't think anyone thought that we would continue doing it for as long as we did. But in a way, that kind of disbelief really lit a fire under us. Like, okay, well, we got to prove them wrong, you know? And and in a way, like, prove ourselves wrong. Like, we, ha- we had our own doubts. Before this trip, Erin had very little experience with long-distance biking. She'd done some other outdoor adventures like backpacking, but those trips were usually only a week or 10 days long. Despite her lack of experience, Aaron took the leap and said yes to the journey. Mehedi lent her one of his extra bikes, they flew to Puerto Vallarta, and the two hit the road. They put in between 10 and 60 miles a day. At night, they camped and used the Warm Showers app to find places to stay along the route. For food, Aaron and Mehedi tried to cook as much as they could, using a little BioLite stove to make meals. It wasn't always easy, but the two were determined to make it work. Okay, so you started in February 2016 from Puerto Vallarta, and the goal was to get all the way down to Patagonia. Was there like a time that you needed to be in Patagonia? Like, were you afraid you were going to run out of money? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So money was a big uh, factor in 
kind of feeling like we had a pressure to get to where we needed to go at a certain time. You know, when we first started or right before we left, money was probably the biggest question mark for us. It was like, how are we going to do this? (laughs) How are we going to get to where we really want to go? But, you know, you just get creative. So what we did was while we were on the road, the first, we call it like the first trip um, or the first half of the trip, uh, Mexico to Peru, we had, I had been posting a lot on Instagram. I had been keeping a blog and we were kind of crowdfunding and be on the road for two weeks and really needed to stop somewhere and shower and kind of like dry out. We would, um, you know, approach a hostel or a hotel or something and be like, you know, can we take photos? Can we post in exchange for, you know, a free night or two. And then my husband is a woodworker. He's actually incredibly talented, trained woodworker. And so he would, like, carve these spoons from local hardwood and sell them on our website. And also just, like, you know, he would be able to offer, like, handyman work for some of the places that we were staying. I love that. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the fear. (laughs) Before you left, like you were scared of the language, you were scared of money. What else were you really scared of before going on the trip? Um, you know, I, I think I was afraid of failing or feeling like I was going to fail. You know, it's it's so scary to take on such a big idea, right? But it's vulnerable to put yourself out there and tell people, I'm going to do this thing. And then what if you don't do it? And so I think for me, I, I felt I felt afraid of failing. And there were so many times that I really wanted to leave and, you know, just get on the next flight home from the nearest city. So I, I had mentioned that it took us about four months to cycle through Mexico. And really, it was only half of Mexico because Central, we started in Central you started Mexico. In yeah. So, you know, we spent the four months there. And in those four months, I had gotten sick three times. I, you know, I had like a, some bacterial thing, typhoid thing, like stomach stuff. And the day we crossed the border into Guatemala, we were so happy. I mean, it was our first border crossing, right? After four months of cycling through Mexico. So it was this profound sense of, you know, just accomplishment and and pride. And we rolled into this tiny little village and decided, you know, this is where we'll camp tonight. I started to feel kind of sick again. And I spent the entire night in the bushes, basically, (laughs) and um, just really sick. And I really had this kind of turning point. I realized that, you know, I just, it it was a test. How committed am I out here? You know, I'm getting on the bike every day and I'm doing the work. And yes, I have these amazing days where I feel strong and kind of triumphant over each hill that I'm cresting. But then there's all these other days that I feel like I kind of just want to crawl in bed and have my mommy make me soup, you know? And I kind of had to look at myself and say, you're stronger than this. You can keep going and get better and let's hit the road again. 
So we took some time off in Guatemala, about two weeks, and I worked on my gut, a lot of probiotic stuff, and I felt so much better after a couple weeks that we hit the road and we absolutely just nailed it through all of Central America. And I look back at that time and I think that was the strongest that I felt um, in all of the time that we were cycling. And it was because I had this adversity to kind of challenge me and to ask myself if my heart was really in this. And in the end, it was. Erin learned to be confident and to trust her intuition on the bike. There were plenty of times, like throwing up in the bushes all night, where other people would have thrown in the towel. But Erin kept going, and it was worth it. There's so much beauty in Latin America, and I feel like most Americans will unfortunately never get to see this side of Latin America because there's so much kind of fear instilled in us through the media that a lot of these places are unsafe, um, you know, especially in a lot of Central America. And um, I can count on one hand how many times, how many days in two years on the road where we didn't feel safe. And I feel like you could say that about anywhere in the world. So definitely, you know, there's so much profound beauty in Latin America, especially we really loved uh, South America for its just vastness. And the Andes are incredible mountains. They're just so picturesque. They're colorful. We were really, really lucky to spend, gosh, I don't know, a few weeks on this one route called the Peru Divide. And it took us just through some of these most remote and picturesque landscapes that we had ever seen. And It had to be, you know, 14,000 feet or something, maybe higher. And we stopped. There were all these um, sheep on on the side of the road and alpacas. And and there was a shepherd who kind of, you know, was watching us kind of come up the mountain. And so when, when we met him on the road, we stopped and just chatted with him for a little bit and got a photo. And, you know, he just... He told us about how these peaks that we were looking at, which were bare, he said, you know, these used to be covered in ice year round. We had never seen them before. And just in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, they had melted. And now you can see these, you know, gorgeous colors in the mountain that we never knew were under there. And you know, without really saying anything about it, we could kind of understand how he was talking about the world changing, our climate changing. And we had this really sweet and profound moment with this local just talking about his land and how it's changed since he's been alive. Wow, that sounds so special. It has to take a lot to even get up 14,000 feet on a bike. 
What were some of the biggest things you considered as you traveled through these different landscapes? So we spent about four months in Mexico, um, four months in Central America, and then we spent, gosh, a total of, I guess it was 10 months in South America. But what ended up happening was that we hit the rainy season in Central America. And for the most part, it was okay. But by the time we got to like Costa Rica and Panama, it was pouring on us every day. And so we had to wake up really early at like, you know, 5 a.m. and hit the road at like 5.30 just to make some miles before the storms would come in. I cannot imagine. So you were there in like late summer, like September or September, October. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's heinous. Like I've been there and it flooded so much I couldn't walk yeah. like a couple of feet. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. And we were also camping. So it was like there was a certain point where I think when we by the time we got to South America, you know, it, it was still raining and it was rainy season in Colombia and Ecuador. In fact, it rained on us almost every single day we were in Ecuador. It was like everything was like soggy, like our shoes never dried out. And you can imagine the smell. I mean, it was just intense. But all of our stuff, my cameras, my lenses were foggy. And, you know, it was just like we were getting we were getting it handed to us. We'll put it that way. So we ended up actually stopping the trip in northern Peru. My grandmother had passed away and my mom really wanted me to come home. And we had like $60 in our bank account by then. So we just, you know, we we kind of were like, okay, this is maybe this is a good breaking point here, and we'll come back and we'll finish it. But you know, at that point, we had been on the road for fourteen months, and we were kind of like, okay, let's go home, let's recalibrate, we'll buy some new shoes, <laughs> and um, and I had to buy some new camera equipment, um. And saved up some more money, and then we were able to go back to Peru about a year later. Taking a break allowed Aaron and Mehdi to reset and come back to their trip with a new perspective. When we come back, Aaron talks about what it was like to get back on the road after pausing the ride and spending a year at home. She also talks about what it was like when she finally reached the finish line and the lessons she learned from this life-changing experience. Here's a cool wild idea. REI and Capital One have partnered to support the mission of creating a more equitable outdoors, something that's important to us at Wild Ideas and to you, our listeners. Through the REI Co-op MasterCard program, Capital One and REI donate $2 million every year to the REI Cooperative Action Fund. That donation supports more than 200 nonprofit organizations across the country working to create a more equitable outdoors for everyone. If you want to find local REI fund grantees in your community and learn more about the amazing work they're doing, check out the link in our show notes. And to learn more about the REI Co-op MasterCard program, go to rei.com slash MasterCard 
mastercard-podcast. That's rei.com slash mastercard-podcast. It's time to start planning your spring outdoor adventures because believe it or not, springtime is right around the corner. After you decide which campsites to book and trails to hike, you're going to want to get your gear prepped. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Birkenstock's Mogami Terra Sandal. The sandal's designed to bring the comfort and support of their iconic contoured footbed to an outdoor sandal. The sandal also has their iconic adjustable dual straps and a hook and loop back strap to keep your foot feeling secure all day long. They're the perfect complement to your favorite trail and water adventures. With added durability, traction, and water resistance, Birkenstock has created an incredible off-road edition of their popular sandals for under $100. Check them out now at your local REI or at REI.com. If you're looking to go on more adventures this year, I have something you're going to love. Did you know that REI offers wholly immersive outdoor experiences where they manage all of the details? I'm talking bucket list vacations, like camping in Bryce Canyon or snowshoeing through Lake Tahoe. They'll even take you cycling through Alaska. REI organizes all of the accommodations and works with world-class guides to plan your outdoor adventure and make sure you're doing it safely. What I love most is that these trips cater to beginners and experts and are suitable for various groups, including families, women, and those under 35. That means that there's an adventure for everyone. With more than 100 trips from coast to coast, REI is sure to have a trip that will get you outside, learn new skills, and meet new friends for future adventures. And there's a bonus if you're an REI co-op member. Members save an average of $400 on each trip they book and get a bunch of other benefits. If you're not a member yet, we'll share a link in the show notes so you can join today. Visit rei.com adventures to find the itinerary for you. That's rei.com adventures. When photographer Erin Azuz came home from 14 months of biking across Central and South America, she and her now husband, Mehdi, felt like fish out of water. They were no longer riding for miles every day. The couple had to adjust to being together in regular life again, off the road. Around the same time, Erin's career really started to take off. When she and Mehdi started talking about returning to Peru to complete the trip, they knew it would be different. They had more financial security and better cycling equipment. Most importantly, Aaron and Mehdi had grown a lot in their relationship and as individuals. You came back from this year-long break and went back to Peru. So what were some of the main differences between the first and second legs of the trip? Yeah, it was very, very different. The second trip felt so much easier, despite the fact that the riding itself was much harder. Um, so we were just more prepared. We had more money. So we would, you know, rent an Airbnb for a week and I would just, 
knock out a whole week's worth of work and then we would leave and go back on the road and be completely off the grid for a couple of weeks and then we'd do the same thing in the next big city. So it felt a little bit more like normal life in a way because we had a little bit more financial stability and, you know, it was a lot harder when we were really trying to not spend any money, camp as much as possible, find the cheapest hostel for just a shower. And I also felt like I had gone through such a transformation on the first trip that I wasn't questioning as much. I wasn't asking myself, am I going to make it? What am I doing out here? It was like, this is my journey, and I've accepted that, and I'm here, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to finish it. So you biked 10,000 miles. What was it like when you finally made it to Patagonia? Well, so the whole time that we were on the road, I used to think about you know, this, this transformation that was happening within me, that I could feel taking place every day. And one of the things I used to think about was who is going to be that person that rides into Patagonia? Like, who is that, Aaron? The answer is probably a surprising one. So in the last few months that we were in South America, I started to develop kind of a a kink in my back. And I kept pushing through. And by then, we were so close to the end. I didn't want to stop, even though I could feel something kind of serious happening in my back. And by the time we finished in Patagonia, I could no longer walk. Once I was separated from my bike, it became really clear that something pretty bad was going on. And so we finished in Patagonia probably about maybe 500, 600 miles shy of Ushuaia, which is actually the the very, very bottom. It's where the road literally ends. So it was pretty anticlimactic, actually, after such a long journey. And I was in such severe pain. I had sciatica running through my right leg. And so we turned around and went home. And I ended up being just laid up for about nine months before that pain went away. And they wanted to do surgery. And, you know, I just I knew that wasn't going to be my journey. But it was uh, really a trying time. And kind of sad because I, I felt like I couldn't really enjoy, you know, the the glory of finishing this trip because I was in so much pain. So that was the person who finished in Patagonia was Aaron who could no longer walk. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing me that because I think a lot of finish lines are glorified in adventure books and movies and they're not always glorious and I don't think your story is unusual um I'm sorry you had to go through that that sounds really painful sciatica is no joke but I bet in those nine months and after and today I mean that trip changed your life you'll talk about it all the time oh it was just yeah I mean it was 
absolutely the turning point in my life for everything that was no longer sustainable just couldn't be. It was like everything I had learned from being on the road for two years was working itself out in my physical body. And I had to embody the new me. And I talk a lot about how this journey felt like it was a journey of self-love in a way. And learning how to just take care of myself was such a huge part of it because I pushed myself so hard. And the fact of the matter is the body will do whatever the mind tells it to do. It will fall in line. Would you be open to talking about the things that you decided to no longer carry into your life after Patagonia? Yeah. the I mean, one of the biggest things that I realized was no longer sustainable was this sense that I didn't deserve the things that I wanted in life, that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't do it. And thankfully, I'm also very stubborn. And and I think that stubbornness really pushed me at the beginning when I really, truly believed that I couldn't do it. I was just too stubborn to stop. And I remember there were many days where I would look at my husband and I would say, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And he would look at me and he would say, Aaron, you are doing it. You're doing it. Look at where we started and look at where we are now. You are actually doing it. And he was so right. You know, I it was like it was like I was my own worst enemy out there. And I had to just let all of that go because you can't finish a journey like this and believe that anymore. Yeah, it sounds like self-love had been like the best tool in your toolbox that you discovered along this journey, which is beautiful. Any advice for someone who wants to go out and pursue a wild idea or bike down to Patagonia? Oh, wow. Yeah, I would just say you need less than what you think you need. We always overpack, right? Whether it's a bike trip or, um, you know, a trip to Europe or a weekend away, right? So don't let what you don't have come in the way of doing the thing. We can kind of just forget what the the point is of doing, you know, doing these wild things, right? And we can make it be about, well, I don't really have the right bike or I don't really have, you know, the, the right tools. Well, you know what? You're going to find them. And sometimes they'll come from unexpected places. And you'd really be surprised by how receptive the world is when you're committed to your idea and making it happen pretty much at any cost. 
Just because I'm a sucker for love, I have to update you on Aaron and Mehdi's life after this trip. Aaron says that everything they went through on this bike ride set them up for a beautiful relationship. The two got married in 2020, they have a child together, and at the time of this interview, Aaron was pregnant with baby number two. It's no surprise that someday when the kids are a little older, the two hope to take their whole family on more adventures like this one. If you want to learn more about Erin, check out her Instagram, at Erin Azuz. That's E-R-I-N-A-Z-O-U-Z. Her photography is stunning. There you'll also find a link to her online shop. If you liked this episode, you might also like our interview with David Sacker, who biked from Alaska to Argentina, or our episode with Jerry Hall, who biked from Alaska to Mexico. You can find links to both of these episodes in our show notes. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, produced by Annie Fassler, Sylvia Thomas, and Sam Pierce-Nitzberg of Puddle Creative. Our senior producers are Jenny Barber and Hannah Boyd. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, take time to rate it, and write a review wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>